Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormady, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 41 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome award-winning astrophysicist and author Sten Odenwald, currently the Director of Citizen Science for the NASA Space Science Education Consortium at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Odenwald received his Ph.D. from Harvard University in 1982. A prolific author, his books include The Astronomy Cafe, Patterns in the Void, and Concepts in Space Science. But today, we're primarily going to be talking about a few of the objects covered in his 2019 title, Space Exploration, A History in 100 Objects, published by Experiment Books. Odenwald joins us from Kensington, Maryland. Stan, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. Uh, first off, your 100 Objects book is fascinating because unlike other books that cover such a wide range and of history of astronomy and space science, and believe me, there are lots, at first <laughs> glance... Uh, these objects seem to have very little in common with each other, but there is a progression and an arc to the pictures in your short essays for each object. You write in your book that our discovery of the nature of our universe and its evolution through time is probably one of the most spectacular human stories that can be told. <laughs> I agree, but why is this so important to you personally? I'm 68 years old, and I got interested in space and astronomy when I was 10 years old. So over the course of 58 years, <laughs> I've had plenty of opportunity to think about this. And I, I think the thing that started me out when I was very young is, you know, why is the universe the way it is and not something different? Absolutely. Why isn't the universe yeah. that was imagined like by the ancient Greeks and Egyptians, why isn't that the way the universe is? Right. <laughs> And that's kind of driven me the whole the whole <laughs> time in my life professionally. And and so, do you mean by that the the uh, the way the universe is physically laid out? Why is the world the way it is, and not something different? <laughs> so, in other words, you are also not just take, thinking about the astrophysics of the universe, but also uh, the life and death cycles of of humanity itself. Oh, oh! even beyond that, I mean, why are the rules of what we think of as the supernatural not the rules that we have to obey in the, the normal course of our lives? You know, it's, it's like, why these particular set of rules for how things are put together? You know, why do we have gravity? What, why don't we have something else that maybe the ancient Egyptians thought about? So the, I guess the, the thing that struck me about the book, mm -hmm. it's uh, how are you able to call these objects? Because... Did you start out with double this number? How did you go about choosing the final 100? I, uh, I went through several selections of 100 objects. Uh, my editor, Michael Cizek, he was really keen on, on replicating a book which, the, which was published in, in, in Britain, <clears throat> which was 100 Objects in the History of Civilization, and he wanted something like that. And so I spent a lot of time, many iterations, putting together, you know, Diff different lists of 100 objects. In one list, I even had things like the Jetsons and flying cars <laughs> and the Alien movie and Star Trek, because all of those things have culturally influenced how we think about space. And so I thought the book was going to be about how do modern humans now think about space and what are the things that influence that? Well, 
what was actually decided on was something that was more concrete and technological and, <laughs> and rooted in the real world. So that set me on to this timeline of things in the history of civilization that individually looked kind of random, but told the story when you looked at the great arc. Uh, we don't have time to cover all 100, but uh, we're going to mention about a dozen. And I purposely tried to mention some of the, the most little known or underappreciated. Number four, uh, at uh, 1600 BC, uh, the Nebra Sky Disc, a bronze medallion about 12 inches in diameter and weighing just under five pounds, is so singular in its design that it was initially considered a forgery, you write. Discovered by yeah. two amateur treasure hunters in 1999 in a forest in central Germany, it was illegally removed and sold to a dealer in Cologne. It was retrieved in 2002 by a state archaeologist and now resides in Germany's State Museum of History in Hall. So how was it initially found, and do other such sky disks exist from the same era? Well, nearest I can understand is that, that these guys were out in the middle of the forest with their metal detectors, you know, the ones that you see these old timers on the beach scanning back and forth with. Well, they were out there, you know, in this German forest, you know, and Germany is a World War II history site. And so they were just, I guess, out there looking for something, and they found this, this, this disc. So they tried to sell it and... You know, one thing led to another. They were finally arrested <laughs> for doing something illegal on, you know, historical property. So initially it was thought to be a, a forgery, and then they found yeah. out for, through radiocarbon dating that it was, it was pretty old. The green color is because the bronze has turned green, is that it? Yep, pretty much, yeah. So that indicated a, a great age, you know, for the object, and... Uh, sort of dated it as being, you know, part of the Bronze Age, an artifact from that time. So um, what actually is on the, what depictions are actually on the... Oh, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous little uh, disc. I mean, it's got a, a, a bright gold sun disc in the middle, and then it's got a, a, a first crescent or maybe even a last crescent moon. Um, it has a little uh, hexagonal asterism of, of gold points with a central one that makes a total of seven. And they've interpreted that, archaeologists interpret that as like the, the Pleiades star cluster, which is a cluster that's known by just about everybody everywhere <laughs> that's looked up at the sky. Right. It turns out that the, uh, there are a couple of crescents on the edges of the disk, uh, which have a central angle of about 82 degrees. And it just turns out that at the geographic location where this thing was found, 82 degrees is the angle between the setting, um, the, the setting sun during the summer and winter, winter solstices. So those are probably significant things to keep track of if you're hunter-gatherer or agrarian society. So you write in, uh, in your book that Nebra <laughs> is the earliest example of a portable device for tracking the solstices, suggesting that by the Bronze Age, Awareness of the movements in the heavens was a necessary part of daily life, just as you mentioned, probably to help manage crop production. How would track, tracking the stars in the celestial sphere help manage uh, crop production? You, you've got to think of it in terms of crop production <laughs> in northern Europe, which, uh, you know, it, it tends to get very cold very quickly there. So you have a fairly short growing season. So you need to get things in the ground as soon as spring happens and you need to harvest, uh, you know, as, as soon as possible, uh, you know, in, in the fall. So 
knowing where the sun was rising or setting during the seasons was probably a really good giveaway as to where you were in this planting and harvesting cycle uh, that was fairly short in, in the northern European climates. So it had a practical purpose that way, if you can interpret that 82 degrees in that particular way. You write that this disk is the earliest example we have of the sun, moon, stars, and sky depicted realistically. So is, is that why it's so uh, important astro- from an astronomical, historical point of view? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, during that time, and we're talking about like 1600 BC, there were very, very few representations of things in the sky that weren't, you know, tampered by mythology and mythological interpretation. And the fact that you have on one object (laughs) a disk for the sun, a crescent for the moon, you know, some stars and the Pleiades, I mean, it's, you've got a lot of astronomical objects congregating together on the same artifact. And generally, you know, you would find pieces of these ideas in different types of jewelry or in different tomb representations, but, but, you know, not all in one place on one artifact. I mean, that to me is kind of an unusual situation. So moving on to the next uh, object, number 10, Uh, we move up to 200 BC, the diopter. Well, a, a diopter is, it basically has two components. It has a flat table, and on the table there is a dial that registers 360 degrees. Uh, there's a shaft going through the center of that dial, and there's a second table on top of that shaft that can be tilted uh, in the azimuthal direction. So what we can wind up getting is an angle along the horizon in degrees, and then you can also get an elevation angle above the horizon. That's important to have if you're building buildings because you're citing to identify, you know, where edges and boundaries of buildings are going to be when you build them. But it also turns out to be very important if you want to create high accuracy maps of the stars in the sky, because there um, you have to use angles, and uh, these diopters were, you know, were able to measure angles to fractions of a degree, with, and that was, you know, pretty high accuracy at the time. You would need some kind of an instrument like a diopter if you were a land surveyor or an architect, and it serves purpose as an astronomical measuring measuring instrument as well. You said it was in use from basically, in some form, from its incarnation around 200 BC up through. The 20th century, early early part of the 20th century. You can trace from the diopter, you can go all the way up to the time of uh, Tycho Brahe and Kepler. I mean, Tycho, when he created his star catalog, it was very high precision, but he used quarter segments uh, that were like, you know, 10, 15 feet tall, and he used cross staffs, and he used a number of other instruments that he built that measured uh, angular distance uh, across the sky. Um, so yeah, that that's was that that's sort of the evolution of the process. Even Hipparchus, when he created uh, his first star catalog, the famous one uh, in in ancient Greece, uh, he used probably something like the diopter in order to measure the positions of several thousand stars. Unfortunately, we lost his catalog. But uh, as I say in one of my other <laughs> elements to this book, uh, we've actually recovered his star catalog in an interesting way. So then moving on to number 14, yep. uh, we jump ahead mm-hmm. uh, to 700 A.D. It's the Dunhuang Star yeah. Atlas, which is generally recognized as the first known complete star atlas still in existence, dating from before the Tang Dynasty, circa 
1618 AD. We know that uh, there were other star atlases and catalogs in the ancient world, but none besides this one have survived to the current era. And this atlas shows the positions of 1,339 stars grouped into 257 constellations, and it's even (laughs) color-coded. So how accurate is this chart, and how important is it? Uh, It's been gauged to be accurate to within a few degrees. That is, the star positions, as uh, the relative star positions are within a few degrees of what's correct. Um, And it's it's a a far better representation of the sky than what the ancient Egyptians had (laughs) in their tomb ceilings. So it's a major progress. So how did, also, how, did, how were they able to do uh, such an accurate star atlas without telescopes? Well, I mean, again, they, they probably had instruments that were similar to the diopter, where that gave them a, you know, a horizontal angle and a vertical angle, and they would basically create star catalogs uh, following that um, angular measurement that they used, which was the same one that Hipparchus used and the same one that Tycho used. So they didn't need to, you don't need telescopes unless you're going for ultra-high precision. And that really didn't become a reality until after the 1700s. And uh, you wrote also in your book that uh, the Star Atlas showed some evidence that the Chinese had a knowledge of the southern sky, in other words, the southern hemisphere. Would they have been able to make those observations from the very southernmost portion of China, or is there some... Uh, speculation that the Chinese may have ventured south into the into the Pacific? Well, that's that's a really good question. Um, like I say, I'm an astronomer. I'm not a, a, an historian. So uh, your, my guess is as good as anybody else's that's not a historian, I guess. But uh, the, the general census is that many of these measurements could probably have been made from southern China, but likely, uh, you know, they had a, a navy of sorts, uh, probably around the same time that was a pretty massive Navy, in fact. And it's claimed that they navigated their ships uh, far outside the latitudes of, of China. And so it's not unlikely that, uh, you know, they could have made some observations, maybe not in the Southern Hemisphere, but certainly a lot closer to the equator than, than China currently is. Yeah. Right. So. And, and but mm-hmm. uh, you write that amazingly, it's pretty uh, consistent with present day maps. I mean, that, that is shocking. Yeah, well, it, it's amazing what you can do with an instrument like a diopter. I mean, that, that's an instrument that, that a, a high school student can build and use to, like, the same level of accuracy as, as what these folks did. It's just a matter of, you know, being determined that you want to measure the positions of 1,300 stars. You know, that takes a kind of an adult motivation and motivations that we might not really understand too well these days uh, from the ancient world. So now we go to number 15. This is a difficult one to pronounce, but it's Al-Khwarizmi's algebra textbook, uh, multiplying the power to calculate our universe, which uh, uh, came about in about 820 A.D. And the word algebra itself comes from the Arabic al-Jabir, which is translated as the reunion of broken parts. This comes from the title of a book written by Persian mathematician and astronomer Al-Khwarizmi, as I mentioned. And a key ingredient, obviously, in algebra is the replacement of numbers with letters, especially to represent an unknown quantity. And this used to drive me... (laughs) I was not a good... uh, uh, Surprisingly, because it's strange that I write about astronomy, but I was was never a good math student, to to put it mildly. I I, I could... 
Yeah, I, I used to watch the old black and white Twilight Zone uh, series when I was very young. And towards the end of their, their series, uh, in their uh, opening credits, they would show uh, E equals MC squared floating across the screen. And I was so enraptured by those symbols that I immediately tried to find out what they were supposed to be all about. And I think I was something like, you know, eight years old. And it was just so mysterious, representing something by a bunch of letters, and it didn't make an, it didn't turn into an English word. It just turned into a jumble of letters with a exponent two. You know what was that all about? You know, so anyway, so were you a good? I, I assume you were a good math student. <laughs> uh, I was a solid B B plus student until I got into college, and then I. It was a level of maturation that I think I needed because from then on I was straight A's in advanced math and calculus and you know the whole nine yards. It just made sense to me. You know, it's just a maturation process that some people have to go through. A key ingredient, just as you said, in algebra is the replacement of numbers with letters, especially X, to represent this unknown quantity. You know, algebra and this kind of math just suffuses all of physical science. You know, if you're trying to build a you know, a theory, it has to be a quantitative theory because your, your measurements are numbers. Right. Uh, and so the theories that you create have to be algebraic or they have to be, you know, written in terms of symbols and relationships between them that are logical. And that constitutes the basis for your theory. And yeah, I mean, uh, the, the people that work in high energy physics and theoretical physics, you know, they've just completely exploded the universe of mathematics in order to discuss quantum fields and multiverses and string theory, you know, they've even created their own mathematics and, and to some degree. So you write at its core that algebra is a system of symbols that stand in, uh, that stand for unknown quantities, but nevertheless obey the basic operations of addition, subtraction, <laughs> multiplica- uh, multiplication, and division. And its greatest strength isn't its usefulness in determining specific answers to individual problems, but rather the way it can be used as shorthand to describe a procedure called an algorithm for finding the answer to a whole type of problem. And so we hear about the magic algorithms in computing all the time with the Google founders algorithm or algorithms, which revolutionized internet search engines. Uh, So tell us what, how, uh, give us a simple algorithm if you can. Oh, okay. Here's, here's a simple algorithm. I want to calculate the force of gravity between two bodies. Well, that algorithm is you, you take the product of the masses of the two objects, you divide by their distance squared, and you multiply by a constant called Newton's constant. And that gives you the force between them in your units of force. Um, e equals mc squared is another algorithm. You take the mass of an object, multiply it by the square of the speed of light, and you get energy in ergs, you know, or you can do that to get power in watts for the sun if you want to do that. So it's, yeah, I mean, it, and, and these things can in, in part be pulled out of thin air as part of your theory, but they are subject to experimental verification to prove that, yep, if you want to calculate the energy of something, it's the mass times the speed of light squared. And no matter what the mass is, if it's an atom or an electron or a proton, this relationship holds, you know, for that kind of a thing. And that's the basis of verifying the theory. So, and you write uh, that algebra is a key to unlocking the potential of engineering and physics because Mm -hmm. it allows us to calculate movement and forces in their natural, dynamic, ever-changing states. In other words, the universe. So, uh, how has 
algebra algebra changed or evolved over the millennia? Well, it originally it it was developed as a way to supplement uh, geometric knowledge about triangles. Uh, then it made its way into bookkeeping <laughs> uh, and, and economics, and then finally, uh, at the hands of uh, Galileo and Newton, turned into a full-blooded way of describing forces and momenta and masses and motion in the universe. And the logical relationships between those things uh, led to, uh, you know, all that we know about uh, how these things behave in the physical world. It, algebra has expanded, it's enlarged uh, to account for a variety of phenomena in nature and the nature of uh, matter itself, in fact. Moving on to number 20, the Incisheim Stone, yeah. which is a, a meteorite in France. Uh, a few minutes, you write that a few minutes before noon on November 7, 1492, over the town of Incisheim, France, a boy working in a nearby wheat field witnessed a 280-pound meteorite impacting the ground, digging a crater of more than three feet deep. The stone is the oldest meteorite whose appearance in the sky and impact on the ground can be identified with a precise date and time by a witness, and of which pieces are still preserved. So what's the significance of this? Well, the significance is that, that before then, you know, we had a fair number of reports uh, from ancient China, for instance, of large stones falling from the sky and in some cases killing people or destroying towns. But there was never a remnant of the thing. There was never a, a sample of the rock. And the actual location was never known. And the time of day or date was never known. This is the first time that historically an actual meteorite <laughs> was recovered from an impact at a specific date and time. <laughs> and uh, I... I mean, I think that's kind of remarkable. Um, I, I'm glad that the boy was, was not near the crater when it was being formed. <laughs> that's a little bit too close for comfort. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's significant because it's highly documented in, at that time period in, in human history. Up until then, uh, the heavens were created out of, they were, they were it, the heavens consisted of like objects that were made of some cosmic luminous matter. <laughs> Uh, actually, it was called it was called ether. Uh, planets were luminous objects, and they were formed from ether, the the fifth uh, essence, uh, as you would say, the quintessence. But here, you know, when you have a rock coming out of the sky, landing on the ground, all of a sudden, well, you know, there's got to be some other stuff going on up there. It can't just all be sunshine, harmony, and, and, and the, you know, quintessence. There has to be something tangible going on, and that was really pretty perplexing. In fact, the idea that rocks rained from the sky was controversial even through a good portion of the 1800s. You know, you'd be laughed on, off the stage if you said that there were things called, you know, meteors and stuff like that that were made out of rocks. They, they didn't really form logically any cohesive idea of what these things were. Uh, they, they looked at them as phenomena in and of themselves, not that they were caused by things rapidly passing through the atmosphere. They were just things. <laughs> well, first of all, they thought it was an, you know, an, an evil demon. So the first thing they did was to chain the thing to the ground with heavy chains. <laughs> yeah. And then they realized yeah, the thing wasn't moving around much. So people started hacking it into pieces and taking the pieces off and, <laughs> I don't know, you know, putting it on their, uh, you know, their mantelpieces as trophies. And so the original, like, 
280-pound thing was turned into something that's closer to maybe 150 pound of actual rock, and that's what's in the museum. So let's move on to number 24, and this is, I'm surprised, I didn't realize the slide rule uh, first came about in some fashion around 1622, uh, but the slide rule, the proto-calculator technology of the 1960s space program. And uh, uh, I'm sure you know the late Sam Cooke, who in his classic uh, song, uh, what a wonderful world sings. Don't know, don't know much about algebra. Don't know what a slide rules for. Uh, that would probably apply to me as well. I would guess that most people fall into that category. So what is a slide rule and how does it work? Well, you know, it, it's a, it's a fascinating principle. Um, you know, if you were to take two yardsticks and put them together so that the, the inch markings sort of lined up with each other, you could actually slide one back and forth relative to the other one and do a simple addition or subtraction, right? Uh, just by moving one of the yardsticks you know, to the right, you could make an addition problem. If you move it to the left, you could do a subtraction problem. Well, it turns out that uh, if you take the logarithm of a number, you get something which can be related to a linear scale, just like the inches on a yardstick. And so now you can add logarithms, which is equivalent to multiplying two numbers, or you could subtract logarithms, which is equivalent to dividing two numbers by each other. And so that means that if you marked, instead of inches, if you marked it in terms of the logarithms of numbers, you could then slide these sticks back and forth parallel to each other, and you can add and subtract the logarithms of the numbers. So that term, mathematics, like multiplying and dividing, I mean, you know how to add two numbers. You, you put the numbers you know, parallel to each other, and then you add up you know, the columns. Um, for multiplication, you know how that works, too, and that's a really tedious process. And doing something in long division, that's an even more tedious process. Well, working with logarithms, it just turns into an addition and subtraction problem. So that was the major success. You could multiply huge numbers together very, very quickly because now they're just, you're just adding their logarithms. And the use of slide rules by engineers became commonplace in the 1800s, you write, and the association yep. of a slide rule with an, in, with an engineer was as, as entwined in the public view <laughs> as a stethoscope was for a physician. <laughs> yep, so yep, yep, yep. the entire U.S. space program through the last moon landing depended on legions of engineers and scientists who turned these manual calculators to engineering problems yep. to literally take us to the moon and back. Uh, give us a little bit of that, of how they use these in calculating orbits and trajectories. Well, I, I think many of you have seen the movie Hidden Figures, and right. you learned oh, yeah. what it was like when NASA first started using computers to calculate uh, trajectories and things like that. But computers were still fairly rare, and your average engineer didn't really have access to computers like this, you know, even through much of the 1960s. I mean, it's not like today where you have a computer on your smartphone. Right. So they had to use slide rules for most of the journeyman average kinds of calculation tasks that you wind up having to do, you know, as you're, you know, creating a trajectory or processing data and things like that. It was only rarely that, that massive computers were used for doing calculations. I mean, they were only used for like you say, the orbit calculations, which are very complicated. But for all other calculations, um, you would whip out your slide rule <laughs> and do your multiplication and division, you know, as needed uh, on that instrument. I also remember a scene in uh, Apollo 13 when 
Jim Lovell is talking to Houston and they're trying yeah. to come up with a, a trajectory that would to put them back into earth reentry. He's kind of fuzzy. He's very tired. He says, uh, Hey guys, can you get, can you uh, check my calculations? And probably half a dozen uh, mission controllers uh, who just go to work on their slide rules. It was kind of funny. Any engineer worth their metal could perform very complicated calculations in matter of seconds using a slide rule. It was not uncommon for slide rule engineers to beat, you know, computers, you know, during the early 60s. Uh, if you were a good enough engineer and were familiar with the scales on your slide rule, you know, you could, you could you know, whip the, the jeebers out of a computer because <laughs> you'd have to program the computer, you'd have to enter the data and turn the, have it turn the crank. And by that time, you know, the engineer with the slide rule was already out taking a coffee break. Okay. So, yeah, on the Apollo, you had to have a slide rule with you in case the, you know, the very low-quality, simple computer actually failed for one reason or another. Oh, okay, so that's, uh, that, so, so that's why the astronauts were issued slide rules. And there, there were very often pre-calculations that you had to do before you actually entered data into the onboard computer, and those you know, calculations were usually done by a slide rule. You write in your book uh, that uh, Buzz Aldrin had his own uh, slide rule, and he took it uh, to the moon on <laughs> Apollo 11. But his slide rule that he brought back from the moon was sold at auction for $77,675. So that's, a, that's amazing. Expensive slide rule. So moving on, the gyroscope, number 30, uh-huh. which uh, the first incarnation was built in 1743. It's a device for keeping rod, uh, rockets flying straight and true. So what, what is yeah. a gyroscope and how does it work? A, a gyroscope takes advantage of a, a principle called uh, angular momentum. That is, if you have, if you imagine the ice skater out on the, on the ice, you know, and they're spinning and they bring their arms in, they spin faster. Well, now imagine that the ice skater in her two hands, she's got two bricks <laughs> and she's spinning. It's going to take, when she's spinning fast, it's going to take quite a push to tip her off of spinning along her vertical axis because the angular momentum which is moving around the vertical axis there, has to be overcome by the force that you're applying. And, and so spinning things, whether they're ice skaters on the ice or you on a bicycle, because your bicycle wheels act like a, like a gyro as well or when they spin around an axis. So part of the way that you become stable on a bicycle when you're traveling fast is because of the gyroscopic effect of the rotating wheels. So that's one thing. What you want to do if you're flying a rocket, one thing that happens with rockets is that they tend to keel over as they fly. Higher up they go, atmospheric friction tends to cause them to sort of flatten out their trajectories and things like that, which isn't the the behavior that you want if you wanted to travel long distances. So what they do is they put a gyroscope in the nose cone of these rockets, and the gyro has a mass that spins so fast that the mass of the rocket has to follow basically the angular momentum of these spinning masses. Um, and so as, and you spin them at a very, very high rate. So you get a lot of angular momentum and that makes the rocket very stable. And so it basically doesn't keel over anymore. Uh, it'll fly vertically straight up. If you set the gyro in, in one orientation, or you can program the gyro to tilt in a way that will actually cause the rocket to follow the tilt of the gyro as you, you know, as it goes. 
You write that just three weeks after Yuri Gagarin made his historic orbital man flight into space, Alan Shepard became the first American astronaut to reach a suborbital altitude of 116.5 miles aboard a cramped Freedom 7 capsule on May 5, 1961. Neither of these successes would have been possible without accurate inertial guidance based on the simple concept of the gyroscope. So can you can yep. you explain why this is and what what is inertial what is an inertial guidance system? Well, an inertial guidance system uses information from the spinning gyroscope and it also uses information from accelerometers uh, to figure out what orientation the rocket is in, what speed it's traveling in each of the three directions up, down, sideways, and so forth in three-dimensional space. And also, with the gyro, you get the orientation information. Now, inertial guidance, what that does is, for instance, you program in what you want those measurements to be, okay, in the acceleration and in the gyro spinning. What the spacecraft then does is compare those numbers against what it's actually measuring. And if there's a difference, it uses that difference to control thrusters, to bring the rocket back in line with what your course was that you programmed in with the inertial guidance system. So the inertial guidance system is, is an important way of keeping a rocket or a payload on an exact trajectory that you program in in advance. And the information departures from that, what the rocket is doing as a departure from that is used to control thrusters to bring it back in line with what the inertial guidance system says the measurements have to be in order to remain, you know, on a particular course. And just parenthetically, you mentioned accelerometers. What are accelerometers? Uh, these are usually small masses that you measure the acceleration of gravity on, as or, or the acceleration dynamic on, uh, as uh, you know, something progresses, something moves. Okay. Uh, usually, you have accelerate accelerometers in you know one in each direction you know, up and down, left and right, and forward and back to cover three dimensions in space. So you can measure how you're moving and the rate at which yes. you're moving. Okay. So uh, Exactly right. So number 39, uh, the triode vacuum tube, uh, which signaled the birth of electronics. You write that the invention of the triode vacuum tube uh, dramatically changed the development of radio wave receivers by improving the actual strength of the currents feeding the headphones. You noted that American engineer Lee DeForest's invention of the Audion vacuum tube in 1906 enabled all this to come about. You write that it's impossible to pick a single foundational object that unlocked the potential for the space age because all technology is derived from developments that came before, but the triode tube may come nearer than most. It's often considered the starting point of the existence of electronics. And the sending of electrical signals is fundamental to exploring space. A spacecraft that cannot communicate over long distances simply won't work. How did uh, DeForest come uh, come up with this uh, idea? Well, before DeForest, you had something called the diode tube, which basically had a filament that produced electrons by heating up the filament. And those electrons then float across to a plate on the opposite end of the tube. And, of course, if you connect the plate and the filaments together into a circuit, you basically have current flowing in only one direction through, through the circuit. You don't have anything going from the plate back to the filament. So that's why it's called a diode, also because it's got two elements to it. Now, in the early crystal sets, 
you know, you're listening to a signal, which is basically a frequency vibration. But if you plug your headphones directly to that and let that signal energy power the headphones, all you would hear is a buzzing sound because the diaphragm would go back and forth in cadence with the, the frequency of oscillation. What you do is you put a diode in there, which lets the, the current flow one direction and blocks it from flowing the other. So basically you cut off half of the signal and now you can drive your headphones the way that you normally think by increasing and decreasing the, you know, the, the headphone motion, but it's not periodic so you don't get buzzing. Well, then it was discovered, and this was at the time of, of DeForest, that well, what you really needed to do is to get away from just using the incoming signal to power the headphones. It would be really nice if we could amplify that incoming signal. And what DeForest discovered was that if you put a grid, which is a, a porous plate between the filament and the, and, and the plate, you could actually control the flow of the electrons to the plate by just changing the current flowing or the voltage of that, that, uh, that grid that was put between the plate and the filament. That's why it's called a triode because it's got three components now. Uh -huh. Now the cool thing is <clears throat> you can create, you can produce a triode which actually amplifies the signal tremendously. So as a result, you now had a way of amplifying a very weak signal by tens or even hundreds of times, depending on what kind of a triode configuration you had. So it was an important and dramatic way of stepping from a simple crystal set, which just uses the energy of the ambient wave to power the headphones, and taking the step up to a device which actually can amplify that signal so you can listen to very far away distant weak stations, you know, with the same fidelity as a nearby powerful one. Without the triode vacuum tube, we would not have had the transistor because we, we, that was kind of like the progression to the transistor. Is that right? Well, the, the transistor was sort of a different approach to things, but it still bar borrowed the same concept that you would have, you know, two things with something sandwiched in the middle. And that thing sandwiched in the middle would be controlling the flow of current between the, the, the outside, outlying two things. Okay. So with a triode, you know, you have the grid, but with a transistor, you've got uh, two junctions and you have the, the base in between those two junctions. And by changing the current on the base, which comes from your radio signal coming in, you can amplify it by changing the current and, and the performance of the, the transistor by changing the collector and the emitter circuit and uh, achieve a gain of, you know, tens to hundreds of times, just like the old triodes. But transistors, you, they only work on, on, on volts worth of electricity and produce no heat for the most part, whereas triode tubes, they're... <laughs> You know, you could cook hot dogs on them, I guess. <laughs> you know, they're very wasteful. <laughs> but anyway, the uh, the subsequent development of the miniaturization of this uh, these electronic technologies have enabled the exploration yep. of space. And, and particularly, I was thinking about the, yep. uh, the Mars Perseverance rover. I mean, and how yep. everything has become so hyper-miniaturized. Is there any limit... Explain Moore's law and what that means in mm -hmm. terms of computing and electronics and how that applies to the engineers at JPL that are designing right. these systems that actually go to rove the, yeah. the, another planet. It, Moore's law was, was sort of proposed by Gordon Moore. He was the co-founder of Fairchild Semiconductors and uh, 
1965, um, you know, he sort of, you know, plotted the, the density of transistors on integrated circuits as a, as a function of time. And, and notice that, well, you know, the density of transistors as we get better and better at building these, these integrated circuits and these VLSI circuits, you know, they're going up and up and they're doubling in, in density by, you know, roughly every two years. It's a, a doubling time of, of transistor density on an, an integrated circuit, but that's also related to, you know, how much memory you can put onto a chip and how that memory changes over time as you can build things with finer and finer details. I mean, right now, Moore's Law is beginning to get a little bit, we're, we're departing from Moore's Law with the kinds of circuits we're now doing because uh, before, you know, the, the, the wires in these integrated circuits were, you know, microns in size, but now they're nanometers in size. And it's really hard to make things that are even smaller than a few nanometers, because now we're talking about almost atomic dimensions, and then all kinds of bizarre quantum effects start happening. So there seems to be a limit to, you know, traditional transistors that are etched into or deposited onto integrated circuits. But there are other technologies that have come in uh, that don't rely on that particular kind of an approach. And so it still seems that Moore's law is, is working, although the substrate and the nature of what is being measured has sort of changed a little bit. And again, Moore's <laughs> law, uh, yeah. can you give us just a, again, just a, a sentence? <clears throat> what, what is the law? Yeah, it's, it's the it's the uh, the doubling of transistors on a chip uh, every two years. Every two years, okay. That's nominally what the doubling time is is two years. Yeah. And none mm -hmm. of this exploration that we're you know the New Horizons mission to Pluto, uh, the these sophisticated missions yeah. to Mars, none of that would would have been possible arguably without this uh, this triode vacuum uh, tube uh, technology, which was kind of like the forerunner of all electronics. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the original V two rockets, you know, used you know you know vacuum tube type technology. But vacuum tubes are very wasteful of energy, and they run hot, and they they're very fragile. Right. And so, modern space age, you know, has benefited from transistor technology and this uh, super miniaturization and Moore's law effect that has gone on. That's made spacecraft smaller, lighter, less power hungry, and far more capable because. You know, you're cramming a lot more functionality into a smaller volume, so that means you can conduct more complicated experiments and you can retrieve data much more often than you did before. But to get there, we had to first uh, arrive at the triode vacuum tube, and that's uh, that's the point you're making with this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have to go to object number thirty-nine. Yeah, you have to go to grade school before you go to college. <laughs> okay. So number fifty-four, the hydrogen line radio telescope mapping the interstellar medium. Uh, dates from 1951. By the uh, 1940s, the development of radio astronomy aligned with the idea that some radio noise in the sky could be coming from interstellar hydrogen gas emitting at a frequency of 1420 megahertz, which corresponds to a wavelength of 21 centimeters. Okay, in a, in a hydrogen atom, you've got the single proton and the single electron, and uh, the proton and the electron both uh, spin they have a spin orientation. When that orientation is opposite, that is when the proton is spinning up and the electron is spinning down, if you want to think of it that way, that represents one energy level in the, uh, in the atom. But if they're spinning in the same direction, that represents another energy level in the atom. 
The difference between those two energy levels corresponds exactly to the energy of a photon of light that has a wavelength of essentially 21 centimeters or a frequency of 1420 megahertz. So that's where it comes from. It comes from what's called the hyperfine splitting uh, in the hydrogen atom. Please explain how the first maps of hydrogen in the Milky Way were completed in the mid to late 1950s. Well, pretty much uh, you, you take a, a large radio telescope, maybe a 36-foot parabolic dish with a receiver that's tuned to the hydrogen line at 14, uh, whatever it is, 1420 megahertz. And then you uh, essentially point the beam of this parabolic dish, which is about a degree in size, uh, at the sky. And you let the sky rotate through the beam and you measure what the receiver output is saying the intensity of the sky is at, uh, at that frequency. Uh, then you change the elevation angle by a degree, and you let the sky rotate again. You change it by a degree, let the sky rotate again. So, you know, over the course of quite a period of time, you eventually build up a whole bunch of strips of the sky with uh, essentially the Milky Way passing through the beam. And then you represent this on a map of intensity versus the, the right ascension and declination, and you wind up with a map. When you say the beam, you mean the observing uh, yep. strip. Uh, we call it a beam, but what it represents is that the, the energy from the sky is focused to a point with, within the parabola. I mean, that's the property of a parabola. You write that this technology has enabled us to map out the structure of the Milky Way, revealing its spiral arms and complex patterns yep. of, of giant interstellar hydrogen clouds mm -hmm. within which new stars are being, are being formed. Right. How has this technique mm -hmm. advanced since the early 1950s? Well, with, with larger radio telescopes, uh, you know, we can map the hydrogen uh, motion, hydrogen gas cloud motions in nearby galaxies. And what we discover is that the outer portions of these galaxies beyond where you can see stars is actually rotating faster than what we'd expect it to uh, if the gravity holding these clouds was just simply what the stars were representing. So this means that th this is how we discovered dark matter in galaxies. We discovered that galaxies in their outer regions, where you're only seeing the hydrogen gas clouds, they're rotating around the center far faster than they should be with just the mass that, that's uh, you know, keeping the stars uh, orbiting. So there has to be a missing mass or a dark mass, which is accounting for this motion. Otherwise, the galaxies would fly apart. So hydrogen mapping of other galaxies is letting us study dark matter. Uh, it's also letting us study... Uh, the very ancient stars, the very first generations of stars that formed in the universe because uh, they produce ionization regions which uh, are copious producers of uh, you know, radio emission. So object number 81, this goes back right. to the start, the cosmic yep. microwave background, Smoot's differential microwave sure. radiometer Big Bang cosmology confirmed. So between 1976 and 78, uh, astrophysicist George Smoot tried to detect the Doppler motion of Earth as it moved through space with respect to the cosmic microwave background radiation. So let, before we go any further, mm -hmm. define what the CMB, the cosmic microwave background, actually is. Well, the, the CMB, when, when the universe was young, it was, uh, you know, the, the gases were at very high temperature and it was very luminous, but because space is expanding as the universe grows... Uh, the wavelengths of that light get stretched, and now they're mostly found in the microwave portion of the electromagnetic spectrum today. 
So they produce what's called the cosmic microwave background. This is literally the fireball light from creation that has been stretched <laughs> by cosmic expansion until it now is visible instead of as a gamma ray source, <laughs> which is what it would have been. It's now seen as a, a, a weak radio source in the microwave part of the spectrum. So Spooth's instrument called the Differential Microwave Radiometer, a device that measures electromagnetic radiation in microwave wavelengths, was mounted on a high-flying U-2 spy plane in 1976. Uh, the idea is that the microwave part of the spectrum is really sensitive to the amount of water vapor in the air. And if you're trying to measure a very weak cosmological signal, uh, you want to get above as much of the water vapor in the atmosphere as you can. And so the best way to do that is, uh, <laughs> you know, to put your instrument in a U-2 plane, which is up at seventy or 80,000 feet. And so that's what uh, George Smoot and his uh, researchers did uh, and uh, used their instrument up there to make some of the preliminary measurements, basically proving the, that the concept worked. And then they developed this instrument for use on the COBE satellite in the late uh, 1980s and did their final definitive measurements of the cosmic background radiation that way. And the instrument was successful in measuring the Milky Way's motion relative to the cosmic microwave background. Why is this instrument on your list? It, it's, it's on the list because uh, the cosmic background radiation is, you, you could think of it as, as a snapshot of how lumpy the early universe was. And it's the only way that we have access to what the early universe looked like uh, when it first became transparent to its own light. Uh, and in the modeling and temperature, very faint temperature differences we see in the cosmic microwave background, we can basically reconstruct what the distribution of matter and the clustering and clumping of matter was uh, at the level of uh, clusters of galaxies and superclusters of galaxies. And that's an important datum uh, if you're trying to develop a, a cosmological model of how galaxies formed and how structure in the universe uh, became the way it is today. And this, and this uh, the cosmic microwave background is our only access to that information. And this microwave background dates from 380,000 years after the Big Bang. So, I mean, only 380,000. That's right. That's, uh, that's when the universe was cool enough that uh, hydrogen, proto the protons and electrons basically found each other and became neutral so that uh, the universe became transparent to the cosmic fireball radiation, which is at that time at a temperature of about 3,000 degrees. Now yeah. it's only about 3 degrees. And at this point, we really, the only way uh, that astrophysicists like yourself think that we would be able to probe further back in time from this 380,000 degree mark of the CMB is to find early neutrinos that have made their way across the cosmos. That's correct. We know that there is a cosmic neutrino background, but of course neutrinos are very, very hard to detect. But that's a progress. That's a process that's going on now. But even more exciting, now that we've detected gravitational radiation, uh, there's also a gravity wave cosmological background. And there's now uh, efforts afoot to try to make the first detections of this uh, gravitational radiation background. And that's going to tell us events that were right up at the Big Bang itself, like within a thousandth of a thousandth of a second or a microsecond of the, the Big Bang. And so that's far beyond what neutrinos can tell us as a background. 
And so in your book's prologue, written by John Mather, who won the 2006 Nobel Prize in Physics for measuring the Big Bang, he wrote, The interval between the invention of the first two landmark objects in your book is more than 30,000 years. The message is clear. Humans can accomplish anything we set our minds and resources to. Are there any limits to what we can do, he writes. So, Stan, how, how would you answer that question? Yes, there actually are. Uh, the, the, the biggest limit is that we live in a finite universe. Um, and, and that means that there are only a finite number of objects that are visible to us. <laughs> uh, so there's that limit. Uh, a lot of these objects are almost duplicates of each other. I mean, one star basically looks the same as another for certain classes. So we're limited by the fact that we have a finite number of, of things to look at, but we're also, you know, the, the question is whether we're also limited in human creativity and technology. I mean, we still seem to be on a, on a tear of innovating newer and more comprehensive theories, you know, with every decade that passes. And our technology just seems to be growing without bounds for detecting faint things in the sky at different wavelengths. So... You know, we're sort of going through like the golden age, certainly of cosmology and definitely of exoplanet investigations. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're still a long way from <laughs> seeing the end of that process. Uh, you know, so we're, we're going to have a very good century, I think, for discovering new things and coming up with new ideas. Is there anything that you would th you think that we should be doing observationally or experientially in the lab that we are not? It's interesting. I'm not these days so much concerned about technological and creative limitations as I am in the limitations placed on these pursuits by society that we live in. You know, and we're, we're going through, you know, what smacks of a, a period of anti-intellectualism in this country and in, in a good portion of the Western world. I mean, the idea that science is a valuable pursuit, you know, seems to be challenged in different quarters. Um, and that's very troublesome. Uh, that, that could pose a limitation for us. But science is advanced by small subgroups and communities of people. And I think so long as they, compete, as they continue to be funded and remain creative, uh, I think we're always going to be you know, pursuing new horizons and frontiers. It's just that the rest of the public might have a harder and harder time keeping up with you know, these new ideas or finding the value in them once, uh, we, arrived at, once we arrived at them. But that's been a challenge uh, through the millennia for science. Well, that's, that's exactly right. But there have been periods, you know, of, of enthusiasm for science, like the, you know, the 60s when we were competing against the Soviet Union. And then, you know, as social issues became more popular, scientific issues, you know, sort of why are we doing this kind of research? Why aren't we using the money elsewhere? Became more of a, you know, sort of an issue. You know, but now we're in a situation where we realize that, uh, you know, the cure for COVID-19 came from scientists working at their workbench funded by public taxes. And so there is a definitely a benefit, you know, to maintaining a scientific edge and keeping up with things. On the cosmological side and astronomical side, that's, that's always been a harder argument to make because, you know, if there are exoplanets out there that look like Earth, you know, that's an interesting thing, but for many people, it's a curiosity. It's not an essential feature of how they carry on their lives. For me, however, it is. <laughs> right. So finally, when you yourself look up at a clear sky, uh, do you think of the march of space and astronomical technology, or do you wax poetic? What goes through your head? Um, 
it's it's mostly waxing poetic and philosophical. <laughs> and I don't know if that comes from age or just just simply the the inevitable march of 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 kinds of questions that don't seem to have a really good answer for us. A, a, a physicist back in the seventies once asked the the, the very tongue in cheek question, "Why is there something rather than nothing?" And the answer turns out to be that nothing is unstable. <laughs> It was a kind of a curious phrase and an interesting answer. It's a kind of an in-joke in the physics community about nothing, which is the quantum mechanical empty space that we talk about being unstable. But, you know, a, a, another way of looking at it is, you know, is the question that I originally started with. You know, why is the universe constructed in the particular way that it is and, as opposed to something different? What is it that's, that's so imperative about the laws of gravity being exactly as they are? You know, are there other ways of doing this and how could we ever know? And this gets us into questions about, is there a multiverse? Can we ever know about these things? And so, you know, the questions that I ask now are 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 more sort of sublime and, and detailed than just simply, you know, can we find an Earth-like planet orbiting a nearby star? It's, it's more, you know, the nature of existence itself. And um, I find those kinds of questions now to be just absolutely enchanting. You know, it doesn't mean that I necessarily venture into religion or religious points of view, but it does cause me to, to think very deeply about things like, you know, what is the nature of time? What is the nature of space? Why are there three dimensions and not four? You know, these are sublimely fundamental questions about how the physical world is put together. And so that's where I find myself when I look up at a clear sky, you know, like, what is it that I'm really seeing? What is it that I'm looking at? So, Stan, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm at uh, my my Twitter handle is at Odenwald Sten. <laughs> kind of awkward, uh, but you can throw me a, a message there, and I'll try to get back to you. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Sten Odenwall, thanks for helping us better understand the history of astronomy and space exploration. Well, thank you, Bruce, for giving me this opportunity. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.